So some weeks ago, I began this series, Unburdened. The text for the whole series is from Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's a an assurance given to us by the Savior that the Christian life, or perhaps I should say Christian discipleship, is a life without the, the soul-crushing burdens with which so many people live. And yet, and yet, it's still true that in churches everywhere, including our churches, many of us are burdened by by our concerns about other people, by our concerns about situations over which we we feel like we should have control. See, some of us live lives, burdened lives, because we feel like we are responsible for everybody and everything. You worry about other people and you want to somehow fix things for them, but you can't fix things for them. We have a ministry at this church called Porchlight. Brad and Lisa Hyde lead Porchlight. It's a ministry for parents who have children that have gotten tangled up in drugs and perhaps perhaps are drifting off in some direction. Perhaps they don't even know where their children are. And this is a terrible burden for them. And part of the burden is feeling like, as a parent, I'm responsible. After all, doesn't the Bible say, raise a child the way they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it, and then they depart from it. So who's to blame then? Who's responsible then? Well, it's not hard if you're a halfway conscientious person to think I'm to blame. I didn't teach my children well. I didn't support them as I should have. That's the problem. And that, that burden of feeling like I'm responsible, that's one of the main things Porchlight has to deal with. They have to deal with parents feeling this terrible burden. But it's not just parents. It's not just parents. I had a, a Baylor student when I taught there come to see me. He was, he was shattered, couldn't concentrate on school because his twin brother had died of an overdose. The circumstances were such that no one was quite sure whether it was intentional or not. But he felt such a burden about his brother. Just a couple of weeks before is his brother's birthday, and he always went home to see his brother on his birthday. They would hang out with each other on their birthdays. And so here they were, twins. It was his birthday, his brother's birthday. He's supposed to go back. He didn't go back. A couple weeks later, he had the overdose. He said, when I was at home over the summer, I, I, I knew something was wrong. I could just tell something was wrong, but I didn't ask. I didn't say anything. I didn't want him to get angry, and now I wish I would have. See, he's feeling responsible. He's feeling the weight of what happened to his brother. And if you're a Christian, sometimes you feel it more intensely because you feel your responsibilities that God gives you to reach out to people, especially the people that you love. And of course, we talk about prayer and how prayer changes things. Did you really pray enough? Did you pray in faith? 
Did you ask God to intervene? And so he carries this. This is so common. This is so common for, for, for Christians to carry this sort of trouble. You know, when there's a divorce, did you know that one of the most common things about divorce is that the kids feel responsible, or at least they feel like if they could just be better children, they could keep their mom and dad together. Can you imagine feeling responsible for your parents' divorce? But that is not uncommon. That is typical. And then if you've talked with adults who've dealt with abuse, abuse is their little children. They nevertheless have this sense that somehow they brought it on themselves. Somehow they caused it. Somehow they're to blame for it. Somehow they're responsible for it. I could go on and on of the different ways in which we feel responsible and we carry these burdens because if somebody's hurting somewhere in our lives, somebody's unhappy, we're supposed to do something about it. For many of us, it's like we're magnets and we're in, we're in a world of metal shavings and they all just keep coming to us, this sense of everything that goes wrong, I'm somehow responsible. I should have done better. And yet, those sorts of ideas weigh us down in a way that keeps us from living the Christian life as God intends for us to live. So that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about how we carry burdens of responsibility and false responsibility. See, what a lot of times we don't understand as Christians is that Being created in the image of God doesn't mean we have God-like powers. Remember we read some weeks ago, I did a whole series based in Genesis. And in Genesis, it says that God created humankind in his own image. You remember the verse? Created them male and female. God created them in his own image. What's it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, it's interesting. In Alexandria, Egypt, before the time of Christ, Jewish scholars got together and they translated the Old Testament into Greek. And the word they chose for image in the Greek translation was icon. Because, you know, an icon represents something else. When you see a swoosh, that's an icon that represents Nike. You know it instantly. Or until recently, a little bird that was colored light blue was Twitter. Now you get an ugly black and white X, which just goes to show you can be the richest man in the world and know nothing about branding. So an icon represents something else. Now, in the ancient world, they also had the idea that the icon represented something else, but also mediated power. So the kings in the ancient world would put statues of themselves at various places within their kingdom to remind people who was in control. This was an icon reminding people about the king. But again, in the ancient world, there was some idea that this icon could actually mediate power, mediate the king's power in his realm. Well, the Bible says that we're created in the image of God, which is an astonishing thing. In the ancient world, nothing like this was ever said in any other culture. 
The king was thought to be in the image of God, but not just rank and file human beings, but we are created in the image of God. We are God's icons. We remind people of God and maybe even mediate God's grace in various ways, but we are not God. We are not God. We are like God in some ways, but in many ways so unlike him that a philosopher I know once said that human beings have more in common with a head of cabbage than with God. And there's some truth to that. It's not total truth, but there's some truth to that. We're on the created side of things. So we are created in God's image, and we are finite, the awesome all-powerful, omnipresent God speaks the word and the universe comes into existence. And he, he creates human beings out of the dirt of the ground and we are finite. God is not finite. He is infinite. We are finite and we are limited and we simply cannot do all the things that we feel like we should do. Or we sometimes feel obligated. See, that's the basic problem of people who are constantly feeling guilty because, you know, they should, they're responsible for everything and everyone. Why do they feel like that? Because they think they've got to play a role akin to the role God plays in the world. They're just icons, but they forget that. See, we don't realize, we don't realize just how pervasive this runs through Scripture until you consider someone like Jesus. So Jesus is the Son of God who comes in human flesh. But in Philippians chapter 2, when Paul's talking about the incarnation, he says that Jesus emptied himself, kinao, which, which means to, to lay aside your glory and your prerogatives. So when Jesus took on human flesh, he gave up the exercise of his divine powers. Listen, Jesus did not walk around just knowing all knowledge comprehensively. He laid aside those things that he could live a fully human life. So consider how Jesus lived life. Was he responsible for everyone and everything? Well, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is preaching and people are bringing their sick to him and he's healing them. It's astonishing how people are being raised up and spirits are cast out. This is a dramatic moment where the kingdom of God is coming with power. That night, Jesus went out and prayed, spent the whole night in prayer. The next morning, the disciples say, everyone's looking for you. What they mean is, we need to come out and do more of this, Jesus. Look at all these people. They have so many needs. And Jesus said, okay, it's time to leave. We're going out to the surrounding villages because that's what I've been called to do. And so Jesus leaves. And when he leaves, guess who he leaves behind? He leaves behind sick people, forlorn and broken people, He's leaving behind people who desperately need a touch of God in their lives. He's turning his back and he's walking away from them. He's leaving them in the Father's care. Why? Because he is limited. He has a calling and he's limited. He can't do everything. 
So he walks away. Sometimes this really, this really gets pointed. So in Mark chapter 10, a rich young man comes to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you need to keep the commandments. And he lists some. And the young man says, well, I've done all that from my youth. What do I still lack? He knew there was something that was missing in his life. If we talked to somebody like that, we'd be struck by just how God was at work in them and what an opportunity. And, and Jesus did speak to his problem. He said, well, what you need to do is sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And the Bible says that the man's face fell, and he went away with sorrow because he was very rich. So what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? He could make like a helicopter parent does, you know, zoom right in, try to fix everything. Jesus lets him go and turns to his disciple and says, it's really hard to be saved if you're rich. And that's the last we hear of that young man. What happens to him? We don't know, but what we know is Jesus didn't go chase him down. Jesus didn't pursue him. Jesus came to the people of Israel. In fact, he said himself, he came to save the lost sheep of Israel to bring them in. He didn't go to all the Gentiles of the world. In fact, if you take the whole landmass in which he ministered, that is 0.007% of the earth's surface. So Jesus comes to save the whole world, and he comes to this tiny little spot, and he reaches out to one particular group of people, the people of Israel, and he leaves many of the sick behind. He heals a few and leaves most of them unhealed. And he even, he even turns people away who come to him trying to find salvation. He gives them the answer, but if they, if they can't accept that, he lets them go. He doesn't take responsibility for their choice. He lets them go. Think about then how he comes to Jerusalem. And, and you know, he looks upon the city and, and he laments over the city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've wanted to gather your people like a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. So what will happen? He says, the city will be destroyed. All its sins will come back upon it. And in AD 70, that's what's happened. But though Jesus laments that and sorrows for it, he doesn't frantically try to fix it as if he can. That's something that's in the hands of God. And think of the world in which he's ministering. Do you realize the social problems? Rome was the dominant power, and the rich were very rich, and the poor were very poor, and there is virtually no middle class. Most people, most people lived in grinding poverty, and there was slavery throughout the world at that time. Does Jesus do anything to address those issues directly? Does he say anything about, you know, justice, social justice? He does only in the sense that he's talking to individuals about how they are to, to live and how they are to value, but he can't do everything. 
He can't do everything. He's not responsible to do everything. So we are created beings. We don't have God's power. And the Lord that we follow as a human being had limitations also. And in spite of his desire to save the world, he had to walk right past people all the time. That should give us pause before we start thinking we are responsible for everything because we most emphatically are not. Let me me share with you how I think it helps to think about this. I'm going to turn in a moment to a passage from Acts about the Apostle Paul that sort of fleshes this out. But when thinking about what are you really responsible for, what, what burden belongs to you, let's talk about circles of concern. Now, at the core, you have the area that you control. And essentially, what we're talking about here, your attitudes and actions. What can you really control? You can control what you do, and you can control your attitude in doing it. Then you have your circle of concern. That goes beyond what you can control. Or excuse me, you have your circle of of influence. That goes beyond what you can control. You can influence other people, but you can't control other people. You can influence events, but you can't control events. And then you go beyond that to what you'd call the broadest circle, the circle of concern. That's where you really do care about something, but you really can't affect it at all. You can't change it at all. I don't know about you, but I'm real concerned about a lot of issues in our nation and in our world And what frustrates me is I can't do much of anything about it. Now, between the circle of control and the circle of concern, there's a continuum, and and it's fuzzy sometimes, the dividing line. So if you're a parent of a small child, you don't absolutely control them, but your influence is dominating. And so you're almost in control, but not quite. And the older they get, the more you surrender control. Now, here's where I'm going with this. When we talk about what we can control, that's what we're responsible for. What are you responsible for before God? Yourself. Your attitude and your actions, you're responsible for that. What about influence on others? I mean, what you do affects other people. Well, that's where we are responsible to people, not for them, but to them. I have certain obligations as the pastor of this church, as a husband, as a father. So I am responsible to people, but their eternal well-being does not rest on me. They are responsible for that before God. So you have control, that's where you're responsible for, you have influence, that's where you're responsible to, but not for people. And then you have the circle of concern, and that's where you simply have to learn to trust. You have to trust that God is God, that you're not, and you leave things in God's hands. Now, that may seem like an awful lot. I mean, I'm setting this up with this diagram and trying to make these distinctions, but I want to read to you something from Acts chapter 20, where you see this way of of thinking about responsibility is implicit. 
So Paul had a responsibility to preach the gospel. In fact, he says to the Corinthians, he said, I don't preach the gospel on my own free will. He says, I can't help but preach the gospel. I've been given a responsibility. Woe to me if I didn't preach the gospel. So he'd go everywhere preaching the gospel. It's extraordinary what he accomplished. God laid it on his heart that he needed to go back to Jerusalem. He knew it was dangerous. In fact, he knew that suffering awaited him, but God had called him. And along the way, he wants to stop and encourage some of the churches where he administered. And one of those churches was the church at Ephesus. So he meets with the elders and listen to what he says, Acts chapter 20, verse 25. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Paul has a responsibility. He has something he could control. God had called him to preach the whole counsel of God, and that's what he had done. He said, I'm innocent. I haven't failed you. I've done what God has called me to do. But then he seeks to influence, verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So you see how he's trying to prepare them for what's to come? He has a role. He has an influence, but this is on them now. This is on them. He is responsible to them to share these things, but now it's on them. They need to keep watch. They need to be shepherds. They need to be aware of the danger. And then Paul says, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now I commit you to God. You might say, well, Paul, shouldn't you stay a little bit longer? I mean, you need to really prepare them for these false teachers that you know are going to come. You know they're going to come. No, he's been called somewhere else. He's going to do what God's called him to do. He's been faithful for what he can control, what God's called him to do. He's responsible for that. And he's being responsible toward them, giving them their warning. And he's going to move on, having committed them to God. Folks, that's what we have to do. That's what we have to learn to do. We can't control everything. We need to control our own actions and attitudes serving God faithfully as best we can. And in the process, we have to be responsible to other people in the roles that God has given to us. But at that point, we have to trust. At that point, it's not in our hands. That's where we turn it over to God and we commit people to God. And it's not easy when you have to commit a child who's going astray to God, but that's what you have to do. It's not that you won't still hurt for them, but it's not for you to carry that soul-crushing burden. Probably the greatest theologian America has ever produced 
is a man named Reinhold Niebuhr. He was uh, a bundle of energy, writing books, giving lectures, preaching everywhere, doing interviews, writing editorials. He was constantly on the move. And during World War II, everyone, of course, was worried about what was happening in the church, and he himself was concerned. He just came back from Europe on a trip in 1943, and he was at a church called the Heath Union Church and preached a sermon, and in, in, in his time with the church, he prayed a prayer. It was just a prayer that he wrote on a scrap of paper before getting up into the pulpit. But another heard it and was struck by it and struck by its quality. It was someone who worked with the Federal Council of Churches, a man named Harold Robbins. And Robbins asked him, can I, can I use this prayer? I'd like to put it in the book of devotionals for our, our soldiers that are on the field. And he said, well, sure. Sometime later, a fledgling organization named Alcoholics Anonymous contacted him and said, we'd like to use this prayer. Would you give us permission to use this prayer? He said, sure. Over time, as people prayed this prayer again and again, the language changed just a little, but the gist of it has never changed from that prayer Reinhold Niebuhr prayed in 1943. You've heard the prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's really what I'm trying to say this morning. We accept that we are creatures and we are limited. We are not in control of things. Therefore, we're not responsible for everyone and everything. Don't carry that burden. You are responsible to people before God, but they have to carry their own load. You can't carry it for them. And you have to commit all your concerns to God. Cast your care upon God, for he cares for you, said Peter. That's something we have to learn. Sometimes people say, let go and let God. Well, there are certain situations where that's exactly what you have to learn to do. So what burden might you carry, burden today that you have that, that you simply cannot fix, you can't put right? May God give you the serenity to recognize what you can do and what you can't do and the faith to commit all things to the Lord. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we know that not every burden we carry is a burden that has been given by you. And while there are many who are trying to escape responsibilities, Lord, you call us as Christians to embrace them. But Lord, sometimes we, we take responsibility for things that don't belong to us. And we pray that you would help us to remember that you are God, we are not to commit our cares to you, Lord. Father, we want to do as you would have us do, but Lord, we can't carry the burdens of everyone and we can't accept responsibility for everything. We, 
we give that to you. And may you give grace to those present this morning who need to unload their burden on you now. Give them grace to do it. And Lord, for anyone here who has tried and tried to change their life and become a different person, Lord, that too is beyond us apart from your grace. And so would you give each person grace to give their own lives over to you, to let Jesus save them even now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.